My great-grandfather ran from communism. The people that dragged him out of his little bakery shop and beat him weren't soldiers. They were college kids, the Red Guard. And I see that that's what they're creating now with a lot of these kids. After seeing the destructive impact that progressive policies were having in California, Alvin Louis packed up and relocated to the Midwest. But in Indiana, he saw the same ideology taking hold. So I realized that if I didn't try to at least share my story, do something, that I can't complain because I grew up in a time where I might be able to do something about it. Today, Louis is the president of Courage is a Habit, which creates resources for parents to protect their kids from ideological indoctrination masquerading as education. When you weaponize parents' kindness against them, to guilt them, to emotionally blackmail them so that they give up control of their kids, there's no way that you're the good guy. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek. Alvin Louie, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you. It's such an honor to be here. I've been really excited about our conversation. Well, I, I am too. I've been coming across these very well-designed materials that seem to be floating around the internet, um, explaining in very simple terms uh, things related to gender ideology, um, what parents should know in relatively simple language uh, that, if, frankly, anybody could understand. And I found myself wondering, where's all this coming from? And I kept seeing this yeah. courage is a habit right. moniker popping up. And then you know, I, I, I discovered Alvin Louis. Yeah, You've been very, very active in trying to educate mm -hmm. parents especially, but also kids around the realities of what's being taught in schools these days. And so, but you're, you're a parent yourself, yes, sir. obviously. Yes. And so when, just give me a sense of how this all began. When did you realize there was something was amiss? Well, I'm originally from California. I was born and raised in California. And I moved my young family from California to Indiana in April of 2020. I didn't, now it's right in the beginning of the pandemic. We didn't move because of the pandemic. It was already planned, but we moved to Indiana. The Midwest is wonderful. We couldn't be happier. But then I started seeing the same seeds starting to grow that ruined California. And to be frank, I was just tired of fighting. In California, you're just fighting all the time. And at the time, you didn't realize that so couple generations of kids had already been indoctrinated in academia and then in K through 12, because California is always ahead of this, you know, with that what the rest of the country is seeing now. But when I saw that in, Cal in Indiana, what was interesting is that everybody reacted the way we did 20 years ago, 15 years ago. Oh, it's not that bad. Oh, something will fix itself. And in Indiana, especially the Midwest, they'll go, it'll never happen here. What is, you're, 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 we're talking about like casually 20 years of indoctrination, yeah. but what exactly was it that was being taught back then? And, and what is it that you say people are being indoctrinated with? Instead of teaching uh, children in schools, uh, high rigor academics so that they could be independent, successful people, they were teaching them a certain brand of politics. And it wasn't here is the left, here's the right, and then let them make the decision. It was here is the woke ideology, here is one side and the other side is bad. And when you do that, children will naturally grow up, of course, to vote one way. And that's what happened to California is everybody laughs at California about how, how, how did they get that way? Well, they got that way because they were indoctrinating the children to vote only one way uh, and to vote no matter, even if it's to their own demise. So when I saw the same thing in, in Indiana, I saw the same seeds being planted. It was like watching the same movie again, except I knew the ending. Mm -hmm. And 
I think at that moment, I, when I realized that, I realized there was really nowhere to run. You know, my great-grandfather ran from uh, communist China when he was already an older man. Hmm. That's how, you know, my father got here. And that's why I was, my, my siblings and I were born here. Now, moving from California to Indiana is nowhere near as dramatic, obviously. We're very lucky to still live in this country. But I realized that there's nowhere for my children or anybody's children to run. There's nowhere to go. Uh, as I, I always allude to, that nobody's escaping uh, the United States to go to Cuba in the middle of the night. So I realized that if, if I didn't try to at least do something, even in the most tiniest form, that I can't complain. And I, I have nothing to complain about because I grew up in a time where I might be able to do something about it, even if it's just a couple of parents at a time. 20 years ago, there wasn't as close a tie between, you know, voting for the Democratic Party and, say, you know, woke ideology. Right. Right. And by no means is it, is it you know, kind of a one-to-one -one thing even today or anything like that, even though it's definitely much more prevalent. Sure. But, like, why? So, so it was voting that you noticed or it was the ideology that you noticed or, or both and they're always tied together? Or what, what, what do you mean by that? It was a lot of young people having opinions and thoughts that when questioned, they fall back to a lot of rhetoric and a lot of slogans. Mm. So one of the things in California is the whole Ill illegal immigration. They've convinced a generations of people that letting floods and floods of illegal aliens coming into the state has no impact on your finances or your, or your safety or anything. No matter what facts, no matter how, you know the, the kind of statistics you show them, it doesn't matter. They just go, no humans illegal. And growing up there, it's you know fish don't know they're wet, right? When you're growing up there, you have no idea because you grew up. You know, I grew up there, and then when you start having kids and things of that nature, and you're trying to build businesses and things like that, you start to go why is it like this here in California? Mm -hmm. And then you start traveling. The thing about people in California, they don't travel very much. That's, that's the funny thing. They just stay around California. And when you start traveling to other parts of the country, you start to realize that that's not, this, why, is this, why is this state using their tax dollars so well? They don't have any of the GDP of, the Calif of California, but yet their roads are better, their infrastructure is better, this is better, that's better, schools are better, their safety is better. Mm. Why is that? And then that's what started me, started kind of working backwards. Okay, okay, I understand. And then, and then you decided, I'm going to get out. I'm going to go to Indiana. You realize now that there's, you know, there's, as you say, there's nowhere else to go. So you, you kind of got busy doing something. And so, so it was, it was like, okay, I must make educational materials that that everyone can understand. So how, how did that happen? Well, uh, you know, I had a small nonprofit in Indiana focused on a very local level. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I live in a, a very nice uh, city called Carmel, Indiana. And even then, the school board and, and the schools are, they already have these ideologies in there. The transgender ideology, the critical race theory, they have porns in schools. The superintendent straight up lie and say, no, I don't think we do. And we present it to them in school board, read it out loud. Same thing. And this is in a really nice, affluent, uh, you know, place. But then I also realized that it's it's something that's been blanket is going to blanket the whole entire country, and it's not a red state, blue state thing. And, and and to be fair, it's not even a Democrat Republican thing. It really isn't. Right. It's really just this attack on children's innocence. It's, an, it's a complete attack on separating children from families, and we can talk a little bit about how they're doing that and some of my tools and explaining that, but really that's really what it is. My great-grandfather 
ran from communism, the, the, the people that dragged him out of his little bakery shop and beat him weren't soldiers. They were college kids, the Red Guard. And I see that that's what they're creating now with a lot of these kids is this revolutionist um, and, and to hate America, to hate American values um, and, and, to, and to drive a wedge between the, the family. And you have to drive a wedge between the parents and children first before you can get them to be um, revolutionists. That's throughout history. That's mm. always the playbook. That has to be the first step. So how is that wedge being driven? In K through 12 today, the way they're driving that wedge, it's using both race and gender, but it's coming through uh, a mental health program called social emotional learning. And it sounds really great. They use terms that all parents love, like empathy and uh, personal responsibility or um, responsible decision-making. All those things sound great, but what it, they're doing what we call language contamination. Mm. So for example, Empathy. You and I, and probably everybody watching, all the just normal people watching, we kind of generally know what empathy is. What the schools today, what social emotional learning, when they bring it in, what they mean is today, when a, a little girl's in a restroom or locker room, if a boy walks in, changing next to them, now they have to have empathy. Mm. So they're not using empathy, they're weaponizing kindness and they're weaponizing empathy. So they're not using it in a way that we think. Now school counselors, and we did a big expose on school counselors and, and social workers, they're redefining two words, safe and abuse. We always believe that safe or if a child's unsafe is because they're being uh, neglected at home, beaten, starved, that kind of thing. Today, they're not safe if you don't succumb to uh, the transgender ideology, you don't use their pronouns, you don't let them uh, have breast binders, you don't let them take puberty blockers. Then the schools are like, the parents are unsafe, they're causing a suicide, they're neglectful and abusive, And now, but we're the safe space. And what's interesting is that if you redefine a term, you don't have to change the laws. You just expand on that existing law to be able to separate the kids from their families, which is why we see a lot of these stories now becoming more and more prevalent across the country. Like in Maine, there was a school uh, a social worker that gave a breast binder to a 13-year-old. Uh, you have one in Wisconsin where they're transitioning a, a, teen, a minor against their parents and there's a lawsuit there. So on and on you're seeing that and it's happening due to the, mostly with the counselors and the social workers. And it's coming through the mental health program, social emotional learning. So, and I mean, we can go into more detail, but in a nutshell, that's how they're using to separate the kids from their family uh, by sexualizing kids early. And then when the parents disagree, because what parents wouldn't disagree with this, they use that to say they're unsafe and they're abusive. Well, because there, is, of course, there are parents who are abusive. Right. Um, and there are parents who create unsafe situations at home. That's right. It's just that basically what you're saying is that the concept of that now has been redefined to include people who have, you know, are trying to instill a loving home. Right. But because it doesn't, feel, it doesn't fit with the gender or race ideology right. specifically. Now they're the abusers. That's right. You know, it would be like, let's say there are parents that goes, I don't ever feed my child fast food. Everything has to be freshly made. Okay, great. But imagine if those parents, which is great, if they went to school and they wrote the policy and they said, if you feed your child McDonald's, you're abusive. 
The problem is with social emotional learning and, and all these really arrogant teachers and school board members and school and, and counselors and social workers, they believe they know better. Mm. They know better. They want to push their idea of what good parenting is onto everybody else. But that's not what a government entity is supposed to do. This is a public school. If they are truly abusive, we already have programs existing that protects those kids. Is it a perfect system? No, of course not. We see a lot of these terrible stories where the system does miss it. But the answer isn't to do a blanket-wide program in the schools and say all parents are abusive and to continue to expand on that. That's how you separate children from, from, from their parents. And the thing, when you hear about social-emotional learning as a kind of multifaceted tool to kind of bring people into this way of thinking, and it, but it's, it's just a survey. Mm -hmm. What's wrong with the survey? Yeah. Well, the survey is how they continually do a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I can talk about the data mining. The data mining is actually very, very important. And that's something that every parent can do. Every parent should be getting their kids out of this data mining survey. But before I talk about the survey, let's talk about why social emotional learning is so deceptive. Okay. And I spoke earlier about empathy. You use empathy, but then really it's about to get girls trying to get them to suppress their natural uh, rejection of having a, a male in the locker room changing next to them. But let's take another example of social emotional learning, uh, responsible decision making. You who would are, disagree with who that? Who would disagree with that? Yeah. Right? What parent did not want their children to have responsible decision making? We teach them that from a very young age to pick up your toys, right? It's responsible decision making through the lens of a critical race theorist means that if you're white, when you become a voting age, you need to vote for things like reparations. That's your responsible decision making. Or you need to give up certain things because of white privilege. And if you're not white, you need to be taking down the systems that are oppressing you and everybody else. Doesn't matter how successful you are, you're being oppressed. That's your responsible decision making. That's you being responsible. Mm. So let me give you an example. And this is an analogy that I use for parents who are just kind of getting into this because a lot of this can be very nebulous, right? Mm -hmm. By design. By design. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. When parents go to schools and say you're pushing political indoctrination, you're pushing critical race theory, and you've probably heard this many times, Jan, uh, we're not teaching it. We're not teaching critical race theory. Okay. So I'm going to say they are correct. They are not teaching critical race theory. California is. They actually have a critical race theory program before you graduate high school. But most other states don't. If you teach critical race theory, it means that you have a class like fifth period critical race theory. Parents can opt their kids out. Kids don't have to take it. That's fine. They're not teaching kids what critical race theory is. They are teaching students on how to think and behave and live like a critical race theorist. So let me give you this example. Let's say you and I decided to start a private school. Okay? But you and I sit down and go, you know, our goal is to create world-class mathematicians. The students coming out of our private school are going to win the most Nobel Prize ever. For, you know, in the mathematicians, in math, yeah. in math, right? So you and I sit down and that's our plan. But of course, we can't sell it like that because most parents don't want to pay that much money for a private school unless it's a well-rounded private school. So we advertise it as a, a very high-end private school in sports, we teach history, we do science, we do all those different things, right? But our school is structured in a way where as soon as the students walk in, the hallways have math formulas and pictures of historical mathematicians. Our teachers read on, during personal development, they read books 
about how mathematicians have changed the world and how important math is. You and I are sitting in these beautiful seats. Well, that's engineered through math. It's engineered how we're holding our weight. Uh, this whole, everything that we're looking at here is on math, angles, right? Cameras and things. Uh, teachers wear t-shirts with formulas. Uh, when we have assemblies, we bring in mathematicians from NASA, from big tech, from finance. Then after a couple of years, parents come to you and I, and you're like, Jan, Alvin, I really like your school, but your school seems really heavily focused on math. We're like, no, no, no. All we do is just teach, you know, your basic algebra, pre-cal, calculus, geometry. Now, if you and I created a school like that, what are the chances of kids graduating high school, there's a K through 12 private school, where all of them are extraordinarily good at math, better than the average person, even if they don't have an aptitude for it. And the ones who have the aptitude for it, they are gonna go off and win Nobel Prizes. Now, take everything I said and replace the word math and mathematician with critical race theory and critical race theorist. They're teaching children to live it and to be it and to think like one and to behave like one and to structure their whole life purpose to push that mission. So tell me about how school counselors, you were saying how they're the sort of biggest purveyors of this. And I mean, that's feels like a, you know, there's, there's a lot of purveyors. So why, why are school counselors so significant here? There's a lot of attention given to teachers and school board members, superintendents, rightfully so. However, the teachers largely affect the culture of a classroom. Uh, school board members can sign, a, they can spend the money like on data mining and things and I'll get back to the data mining. Mm. They, can, they can sign the contracts for the teachers and stuff, but they don't generally impact a culture of a particular school. They will impact kind of the school district, mm. right? But they don't say that particular school board member is affecting that middle school. But the school counselors do. The school counselors and the social workers, they're the ones in the break room, they're the ones in the back wagging their fingers at everyone and they're not using the right pronoun, not using the right slogans, whatever the slogan happens to be. So the American School Counselor Association, I'll refer to them as ASCA, A-S-C-A, they are the largest uh, organization that trains all school counselors and social workers in K through 12. They have a chapter in all 50 states. They're the ones that drive the mission and the uh, training and the objectives for school counselors and social workers. They had an annual conference in July in Austin. The conference was called No Limits, which by the way, we found that very obtuse. When you're around kids all day and you call your conference No Limits, we thought that was kind of on the nose. But we uh, made sure that we went and we grabbed their videos, their training, their speeches, their PowerPoints, their slides, their handouts. Because we knew that parents did not know that the counselors are completely ideologues today. They still think that they're the nice guidance counselors when we all were growing up that help you with your academics. Maybe you didn't feel so good, they talked to you a little bit, but if they thought there was a real problem, they'd bring your parents in to try to work with the parents. And that's long gone and no more. But it's hard to prove that. So we decided that we are going to use their own words in their own habitat to expose who they are. We found so much. Some of it was online, some of it's in that conference, and then since then we found a lot of different things that they're, you know, all the webinars and things. So we created something called Behind Closed Doors. 
And if anybody wants to see them, if you go to courageisahabit.org, that's courageisahabit.org, under school counselors, you'll see our behind closed doors expose. And we're, we're gonna do a lot more this year. But we found all these videos and all this training of them essentially driving the transgender ideology, telling these counselors, keep secrets from parents. Um, if you're in a different state that doesn't have good parental rights laws, you can behave differently than if, let's say, you're in Florida. We have the head of their ethics committee. Her name is Caroline Stone. She's been the head of the ethics committee for 20 years. In their opening monologue to kick off the conference, she talked about how a young school counselor came to her and said, I took a minor girl to go get contraceptives against her mother's wishes. I'm a little nervous about it now. What should I do? And her advice to her, she goes, there was three things I could have done. I could have told the counselor, you have to convince the girl to own up to her mom. Number two, you can call the mom and own up to what you did. Or number three, hold your breath and pray. And she goes, everybody, what do you think we should have told her to do? And everyone said, number three. And they laughed and had a grand old time. And then she explained that she had just taken a child to get contraceptives at a clinic because her mother wouldn't let, them, let her have them. She said, what do I do? Okay, school counselor, solve this for me. Do you, one, do you tell her to go back and convince the student to tell her parent? Or do you tell her, two, call the girl's mother yourself and confess? Or do you tell her, three, Put your breath and pray. <laughs> Turn to your neighbor and tell your neighbor what you're going to tell her. Three, I hear. <laughs> See, you are all ready to be part of the ethics committee. So sign up. If I told you this story without a video proof, everyone's going to go, you're lying. You're exaggerating. There's no way that's true. So behind closed doors is them, uh, us showing them in their natural habitat. It's obvious to everybody in the room what the answer is already. She's not even telling anybody. It's just a kind of a private joke. That's what you're saying. Right. And so there's all these videos and handouts. Um, there's some handouts where they're saying, you know, the question was, if students aren't comfortable with calling someone by a different name or pronoun, what should we do? And the handout was, well, you can re-educate them and have a talk with them, or you can, you can turn them in for bullying and harassment. So now if you're a family that sends your kids to private or public school and says, I don't believe in calling someone a different pronoun, I don't want to participate in this. They're the ones that are, bullied, are bull bullies and, and, and they're harassing. Now you're pitting students against each other. Yeah, because it's, it's one thing where someone says, hey, I'd like you... I'd like you to call me X, and then someone can make a decision. Sure, I'll call you X, or I won't because I don't want to, and that's fine. It's different when it's a coerced yeah. thing, and if, you're, if you don't do it, then it's called bullying or something else. Right. It's very popular, and it's true, to say that children are being brainwashed. But really, what Courage as a Habit really also focuses on is not just that the children are being brainwashed, the parents are being brainwashed first because parents know how to stand up for their kids. Parents have been standing up for their children for eons, crossing oceans, crossing deserts, risking life and limb just to give their children a better life. What is so special about this time that parents 
have no idea how to stand up for their kids. All because you point a finger at a parent's face and call them some label, whatever the label they want to call them. Why? What's so magical about that? It's because parents are brainwashed. They've weaponized people's natural kindness and empathy towards them. So let's say the parent goes, my 11-year-old saw this pornographic book and the mom and dad is just livid and they had a head full of steam. They go into the principal's office ready to just hold his feet to the fire. And he goes, what is this? Why are you showing my 11-year-old? And then the principal goes, what's the matter? You want kids to feel bullied? You don't want them to feel included? And then the parents goes, well, no, that's not what I mean. And you see, just all you have to do is just tug at one of the brainwashing levers, and then the steam comes right out of the parents. I want to go back to these surveys, because yes. you describe the social-emotional learning process, of which the survey is a key feature, yes. um, as brainwashing. And so how, how, how is it brainwashing? And, and then there's this, also this data mining component that you alluded to earlier. So every time when parents push back against these really radical policies, oftentimes the answer is, this is data-driven. It's evidence-based. Research shows. They never tell you where. They just say that. And then most parents go, I, I don't have an answer for that. What they're alluding to is these surveys, these social-emotional learning surveys that they give in class that the parents never see. There's also surveys, they call it health surveys, that come from the Department of Education that the parents can see. But in either case, those surveys, both those types of surveys, they can call them climate surveys, they can call them health surveys, social-emotional learning. We can split hairs on those surveys and there are differences, but the point that I want to parents understand is that those, that data is being, is being manipulated to justify more social-emotional learning, more radical policies. So it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now, the problem with these surveys is it, most of the time, it asks very innocuous questions that most parents won't find offensive. There are some questions that are pretty offensive, especially when it gets to the older grades, like the middle school and high school. Talk about sex and anal sex and blowjobs and things, and they ask those questions. And then that is when parents, they have a reaction to that. It's the innocuous questions that are equally as dangerous. Mm. So I will give you an actual social-emotional learning question. Uh, what is your level of confidence that you can complete the work assigned to you in school? What is so dangerous about that question, right? And in another time and place, that's probably a pretty good question. But instead of using that question to, to, to really try to help the child do more work, they will then take that answer and the, the kids who, let's say, answer, is too much work, I can't. But of course, kids are gonna say that, a lot of kids are gonna say that. They'll say, the school climate is oppressive. The system is oppressive. Certain students of color cannot complete their work because the school is not inclusive enough. So the suggestion to improve academics would be to include more LGBTQ books, more Black Lives Matter flags, or the GSA clubs, so that children feel include it, then they'll be able to do the work. But of course, we all know when you bring that stuff in, all that does is it destroys academics. It destroys actual personal responsibility because now they're thinking more about activism than education. So next year they run that survey again. Guess what? Scores are even lower. So that's just one question. These questions are a lot. Basically you're saying that just the woke ideology is baked in mm -hmm. to the to how you analyze the questions. Correct. 
And for a, one of the largest companies that give, there's a lot of companies that give these surveys to, as sales surveys. One of them is uh, Panorama. And in their, in their website, they talk about how we look at these answers through an equity lens. Mm-hmm. And anybody that studies even a little bit this knows that it's through the lens of a critical race theorist. So every answer that is given will be interpreted through the lens of an equity lens, through the lens of a critical race theorist. And then they will justify bringing more policy. So it doesn't matter how you answer it. It will always justify bringing in more policies. So for example, there's never a school that got one of these surveys and said, hey, we're doing really good on inclusion. We can, we can tamper down now on the in- inclusion and the books and the flags. We can, we can stop that this year and we can do something else. It's always more. You know, the other thing that struck me about these surveys is that they would provide very individualized information about which students are more susceptible to being indoctrinated. Absolutely. Here's a question that they're given to young kids that will fit exactly what you just said. Mm. How many times a week do you have dinner with your family? What's wrong with that question? They shouldn't ask that because that's very personal. It's got nothing to do with the schools. But if a child answers, oh, I, we have dinner with my parents you know, at home four days a week. Okay. Chances are the parents are probably involved, right? If they're having dinner four times a week. The child goes zero or one, a little more vulnerable, uh, maybe not as much adult supervision. Is, is there any evidence of these things being used in such a way? Well, sure, because social emotional learning is completely in the schools. And every time you say, why do you need this? They go, is because it's evidence-based, it's data-driven. Mm-hmm. That's why they collect the data. And this is also why when parents try to see the SEL surveys, they're told they can't see it because it's a private company and they have proprietary. So literally we're spending taxpayer dollars, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, depending on how many years they're doing it, to hire these companies to survey your children, not showing you the questions and then manipulating the data to bring in more policies. And then when you ask, they'll say, oh, is this data-driven? Is evidence-based? Can I see the survey? No. Basically, what I think uh, uh, people who are uh, you know, critical race theorists will say, well, everything is brainwashing, yeah. really. So we're just, you know, we're brainwashing the right way. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Whatever religion you believe, whether you believe in a religion or not, I think everybody should believe, or at least I think, that parents should have the authority to pass their values Hmm. onto their children, Hmm. of their families, whatever they believe. When you weaponize parents' kindness against them, to guilt them, Mm -hmm. to emotionally blackmail them, Mm -hmm. so that they give up control of their kids, there's no way that you're the good guy in this. So for example, every time you push back against a transgender cult, they'll immediately go to, well, if you don't succumb to this, they're gonna kill themselves. Many people on this show have talked about this, how um, you know, they, they were told, if you don't help, mm-hmm. if you don't participate in the social transitioning at the beginning of your child, some people even said they will kill themselves yeah. or they would say there's a high likelihood right. that they will commit suicide. Right. So the tools with Courage as a Habit, we try to help parents 
learn to think past emotional blackmail. Because when you get into that emotional blackmail box, it's very hard to see outside of everything. Because you care about your kids. You care about your kids. Right. Right. Hmm. So we try to help parents go, not stay on defense, but go on offense. Hmm. And when you go on offense, it pushes you outside of that dark box. Hmm. Right. So there are a f- several ways uh, that, that, that we try to help with that. We would give parents uh, questions to kind of so that they think out of it and then they can fire back at these transgender activists, what we call child mutilation advocates. It encourages to have it. We call them child mutilation advocates or CMAs. So we say, well, we do not parent using that standard with anything when it comes to children. I'm 13, you don't let me run away with that 40 year old man, I'm gonna kill myself. You don't let me get a tattoo, I'm gonna kill myself. You don't let me drink alcohol, I'm gonna kill myself. If you don't let me see that boy, I'm gonna kill myself. You don't let me go to that rated R movie, I'm gonna kill myself. We don't ever succumb to that. But when it comes to this, we succumb to it, why? It's because you've been brainwashed. Because that's obviously not true. Oh, but it's it's usually not the kid saying it. It's someone who's supposed to be a trusted figure. Right. Right. Like the counselor or the right. sometimes the school principal. Right. Or example like that. Right. So again, if it's a principal or someone who's trusted, we teach parents how to fire back at that. We would say something like, So if I don't if I don't call them by the right pronoun, they'll kill themselves. So are you gonna say that when they do the breast binders? If I don't give them breast binders, they'll kill themselves. If they don't puberty blockers, hormone surgery, they're gonna kill themselves. If they don't, if I don't let them have surgery, they're gonna kill themselves. The problem is when these parents get brainwashed because they believe if we just call them by the right pronoun, they won't kill themselves, and then it'll be all be over. They're only good with it when you walk them slowly into it. It's like a long con, mm-hmm. right? You start to, mo- it's just a pronoun. Don't worry about it. Just call them by a different name, and then it'll all be over, right? They're weaponizing their kindness. And it starts with something very simple, like allowing porn, not drawing that line. By the time the child gets to surgery, there's nothing the parents can do about it because they've already put the child through the system. They're already separated. Long ago, the parental rights are gone because they've already been deemed abusive and unsafe. If they go against if any, they go against any step in this, right. in, the, in the inevitable process. So right, speak, right, right. One of the tools that we put out is called the Safety and Inclusion Express. Hmm. And it's, you can download it on Courage to Have a Dot. Dot org, uh, but it's called the Safety and Inclusion Express, and it takes the parents through each of the what we call the, the train stop, and the pronouns is the ticket, is the the stamping of the ticket that goes on that gets the children on the train, mm. and there's no exit to this train. You can get on the train if you agree with it. If you don't, then you're outside, and then each stop along the way, you're getting further and further away as a parent, and so the Safety and Inclusion Express talks about how if parents want to get ahead of this, the best chance of you winning this fight is at the pronoun level. The problem today is that the puberty blockers and the hormone blocker or the hormone cross hormone surgery uh, drugs and the surgeries are so horrific that parents are ignoring pronouns thinking at least that's not drugs, that's not binding. But once you get them on that pronoun uh, ideology, the chances of them moving to the next is higher and each step gets harder for the parent to pull them out. They have something that maybe does need treatment, yes. that does need support, Yes, but that thing is kind of pushed aside in favor 
of this being the solution. Absolutely. Instead of treating the underlining issue, they're moving them to this horrific cult. And what we don't focus enough on is the addictiveness of social value. Most of these kids, because they have certain issues, have already felt outcasted socially. And we all do. I mean, what among us haven't felt that way growing up? And then we learn where our niche are, where our strengths and weaknesses are, and then we grow out of it. Why well, I mean, all of us have uncomfortable, and girls in particular, right? Because the body image through social media really messes with girls' minds, right? Men, we get it too, but not as badly as girls. This is why the transgender cult affects girls more than boys. So a lot of these kids, especially autistic kids, they feel they don't feel socially accepted. They feel kind of picked on. They feel that they don't fit in anywhere. So then you get this group that comes along that says, if you join us, you have instant social value. You are heard. You are seen. You're celebrated. You get the enormous love bombs. And for those watching don't know what love bomb is, it's just this enormous pouring you're so brave, you're so stunning, you're so beautiful. For most of these kids, especially when they're on, on the autistic scale, this is the first time they've gotten this almost celebrity-like status mm -hmm. among their social group and their peers. Mm -hmm. That is very, very addictive. It will be addictive to adults, fame. For a little kid, there's no chance that they're not gonna fall prey to that. And the endorphins, and it's like that gambler's high. But once you say, I'm gay or I'm bi, you get that love bomb. Then you have to move now, move forward to say, I'm trans or I'm binary. And then when that love bomb ends, you gotta move to the binders. Because each step that you take, each more aggressive step you take, you, the cult rewards you with more of it. This is why if a parent don't, they have the best chance of stopping at the pronoun level to find out why your child wants to wants to go towards that because there's an underlining issue why but once you let them in and they feel that instant shot of celebrity and fame it is very difficult to get them off of it as it well. is a lot right. of bullying mm -hmm. a lot of bullying i mean you you some of the detransitioners stories when they finally say i made a mistake the, the nasty messages and the outcast from the people that have love-bombed them is really horrible. And that's what a cult does. A cult loves you only if you succumb to all their rituals. And the moment you miss one ritual, they punish you. In fact, um, one, of the very, one, of the, one of the very early tools that we created during the summer of uh, 2022 was called uh, Cult Fiction. And for a time, it was our most downloaded tool. And what we did was we studied the um, eight steps that successful cults in the past have used. And you know, you, you start going through the uh, survivors or the people who come out of the cult and you read some of their testimonies and you know, there's a, there's a pattern on recruitment. And so there was eight things that these cults uh, would do according to the members who are now out of the cult. And we matched it up to what is happening at schools through social emotional learning and how they're getting the kids into the cult. And we matched it up all eight steps, exactly what they're doing. Mm. You've just offered a lot of very disturbing realities. How many, how many parents are involved in 
what you do encourages a habit? How many people are you communicating with? How big a thing is this? How many parents know out of the, you know, the, the I don't know how many parents there are in America that all of this is a reality. Well, certainly uh, we reach parents all across the country and we're very, very privileged to work with a lot of great organizations um, that, that reach a ton of parents. Parents Defending Education, Moms for Liberty, Moms for America. I know Heritage does great work. But I would say that um, more parents do need to wake up to what's happening. But at the same time, over the last year and a half, thousands and tens of thousands of parents have woken up, which is why we have this pushback and this movement. We've also done a lot in a very, very short time. And we're also up against people who are really well-funded. Mm. These people are not working with, you know, a $500,000 budget. They're not working with a million dollar budget. They're working with hundreds of millions. And so it's very well coordinated. It's in every single school district. And as parents, if you think it's not in your school district, I assure you it is. Even if it's not in the extreme as, let's say, you know, California. And, and it's also in the private school system. As it's definitely we, in the private school system. As, which is, you know, some people tell themselves, well, it won't be, it won't yeah. be there. But it is. It is. Yeah. And so I think it's really important uh, for us to give parents call to actions, things to do. It's kind of a bad habit, I think, for, for people in, in our space to talk about the problem, but not offer solutions. I think if there was two things, if there was two things I would say every parent can do is this. Get your children out of the data mining, because that's the bloodline to a lot of this. They use that data to justify and push more, and they're spending money on it. Mm -hmm. So you can really throw a wrench in this if you get your kids out of data mining. Um, and, and so uh, at courageisahabit.org, if you uh, look under um, the tab uh, or the button, uh, SE, uh, social emotional learning opt-out or SEL data mining opt-out, um, at the end of each of those tools is our opt-out form. Now, does that guarantee that they're not going to give your kids a survey? No. A lot of these schools, depending on how extreme they are and how radical they are, they might just ignore you. But at the point is now you've got some leverage legally because you've already turned it in and now you got them on record to ignoring. And so there's some things you can do, but you got to start with that opt-out form. Then the second thing would be to um, going to the behind closed doors items. And there's a form where you... Uh, put your school on notice and the school counselors that they are not to meet with your child formally or informally without your consent. Because if you think about it, if you as a parent want to pick a dentist or a therapist or a pediatrician, what do you do? You don't just blindly close your eyes and pick one, right? You research, you read reviews, you ask for referrals. These mental health, mental health professionals, you don't know who they are. You've never met them. If you've met them, you met them for five seconds. Why are they talking to your child about really personal things? Sexuality, your home life, those things. You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't do that with anything else you pick for your child. If you send them to a music class, mm -hmm. you would research the heck out of that music teacher. You would get referrals, mm -hmm. you know, right? I know a lot of parents do that, especially moms. So you have to exercise your rights because you still have them today. Well, Alvin Lee, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. This has, been, this has been wonderful talking to you. Thank you all for joining Alvin, Louis, and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek. Mm -hmm.